Hey everyone, Jeremy L. Jones here, author of Ruins of Empire. So we have a little problem here at Ruins of Empire HQ. It seems producer Sean has come down with a case of acute separation anxiety. Every week when we are done recording, he slides off his chair and weeps quietly under the table. Now, this could be because listening to me reading for hours on end has finally driven him mad, but I like to think it's because that every chapter we read brings us a little closer to the end. But you can prolong that by leaving a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find this and keeps me writing books so that Sean never has to leave. Ever. You are listening to Ruins of Empire, Templum Venerous, book two of the Ruins of Empire Project, a serial podcast novel by Jeremy L. Jones, read by the author. Chapter 3 Headlines from newswires all over the world describe, in colorful language, the Brazilian Lady of Fire standing up to the brutal corporate oppressors. Her trial was swift. Her sentence was long. If Diana Adriana simply disappeared, the world would forget. But in a world seething in anger over corporate exploitation, the Lady of Fire was in every way the spark needed to light the world ablaze. Once it was set... There was no stopping the flames. From The Fall, The Decline and Failure of 21st Century Civilization by Martin Raff The African Towers of the Financial Consortium were only a few blocks from the Entertainment District. The office on the 50th floor of Building Delta contained new software for special securities and exchanges and was protected with a triple-encrypted electronic lock, motion sensors, heat sensors, and an isolated quantum firewall to all external networks. Its designer probably used the words unhackable and invincible a lot in the brochures. The red light on the elevator changed to green and the security system went to standby. Fluorescent lights snapped on and the elevator door slid open. No security system that has ever been invented can protect against feminine wiles. Althea and the young man, Ramil, she learned his name was, stumbled out of the elevator holding each other up, laughing as they did. They collected themselves in the hallway. The boy smoothed back his now slightly tousled hair and straightened his silver suit. Are you sure you want to see this? It really is terribly boring. Althea ran her fingers up his arm. You're the one that insisted I see it for myself. That was mostly true, although Althea would be lying if she didn't admit to steering him to that conclusion just a little bit. Romeo leaned in close, as if he was going to kiss her, but he tilted his head at the last moment and whispered, As I said before, I could tell you, but you wouldn't believe me. Althea sighed, mostly for show. It was a signal that she was giving over control to him, that her power sexual or otherwise, was under his command. What worried her was how automatically she did it. The subtle cues, the body language, all the hacks in the code of social engineering came back to her as if she'd never given up the life. The boy leaned back with a small smile that suggested he was proud of the effect he had over her. He held out his hand and slurred, Shall we? She hesitated for a moment. Ramel had such a sweet smile. Althea had scammed many men in her time, and a good portion of them were crude, oafish, and cruel. To those men, 
Althea, and women like her, which was to say all women, were just one more thing to own, use, and discard. But Romeo didn't appear to hold this view. He was drunk and had only one thing on his mind at the moment, but that didn't necessarily make him a bad person. It just made him a lonely person. She took his hand, and he led her down the hallway, swaying the entire way. Their footsteps echoed down the empty corridor as they passed lavish offices with views of the city skyline. These were the invisible seats of power of the African Financial Consortium and, possibly, the majority of the world. The people who worked here were mostly nameless, but their influence held more gravity than some of history's most despotic rulers could ever dream of. The offices were all decorated differently, some with golden wood and exotic plant life, others with cold, sterile steel and plastic. Althea wondered what kind of office Romeo would have when they stopped in front of a nondescript metal door. He stood in front of it for a moment before the lock clicked open. Althea laughed. Not much security. She said that for effect. Feigning ignorance helped Demarc feel in control and safe, but it was clear to Althea what she was dealing with. Face recognition, said Romeo, smiling. Rest assured, only a few faces could get in here. Lucky yours is so cute, then. The boy pulled her inside. Althea's excitement dissipated when she got a look on the other side of the door. This wasn't anything close to the expensively decorated offices they had passed. It was just a box with white plastic walls on all sides. The expanse of space was separated by small parishions into six workstations. This wasn't a place of power. It was a place where people did actual work, which meant that there was likely nothing of value. It's very... Althea started as she looked around, and then, because any other adjectives failed her, finished with... Plain. She had wasted her evening, but, at least, she didn't have to go through with it. Truth be told, she had a hard time reconciling what she would have to do with who she would have to do it to. Romeo was undeterred. In fact, he was more excited than before, as he lurched forward, waving his arms expansively. It doesn't look like much, but this is where it all happens. The latest and greatest in new technology. Not just for the financial consortium, but for the whole corporation. Come, I'll show you what I've been working on. Althea followed him to a computer inside one of the parishions. The built-in holographic terminal displayed the corporation logo, the earth partially surrounded by an immense golden sea. The boy sat down and waved his hand through the hologram. Now keep in mind, it's not anywhere close to finished yet. In fact, it's just something I've been working on in my spare time. But it's going to change everything. Do you know what the problem with the fiat is? Besides not having any, thought Althea, looming behind him. Not really, no. Romeo began cycling through various icons that hovered over the desk. It's the same problem as with most currencies. They are impossible to control. They are not tied to anything, so their value is essentially what everyone just agrees that it is, which is why every currency except the fiat has failed. And the only reason the fiat has endured is through gross manipulation of the markets, and every time that happens, it gets closer to collapse as well. Romeo touched one of the icons, and the entire space in a 180-degree area in front of them filled with numbers, graphs, and other financial data. The solution as I see it is not massive manipulation, but hundreds of thousands of micro-manipulations. I've adapted our own AI algorithms to examine billions of transactions and adjust the value of the fiat 
in real time based on that data. Althea's jaw dropped. As a whole, everything she saw in front of her was too overwhelming to make sense of. But as she watched, something gradually occurred to her. The fiat wouldn't be based on anything. It would be based on everything. Ramail leaned back, opened a drawer on the desk, and pulled out a bottle and a couple of paper cups. How about a drink? I've been saving this for something special. Althea glanced at the label as he set the cups on the desk underneath the glowing graphs and numbers. Arak, VSOA, you're a man of tastes. The boy grinned as he pulled the cork and poured. Thank you. As I said, I was saving it for something special. Without thinking, Althea put her hand over the cups. And as a man of taste, you should know that a beverage of such distinction deserves better than a paper cup. Althea sucked in a tiny breath. What was she doing? Her mind and body appeared to be running on autopilot. Was she honestly in the process of stealing this software from him? Ramel put down the bottle and straightened his suit again. Of course you're right. I think I know where I can find a couple of tumblers. Be right back. He turned to leave. Althea knew she should let him return with the glasses, have a drink, and then find an opportune moment to disappear into the night. But a nagging urge in her brain wanted to try. Quick question, she blurted out. I've got to get a hold of my roommate. Tell her I will be late. Is there a way to get onto the Nouveau-Net from here? The boy paused and steadied himself against the wall. His eyes narrowed. You want on the Nouveau-Net right here? He wasn't buying it, and in part Althea was relieved. She just shrugged. That's just a thought. Since I was here, no big... Icon on the top left there. Touch it and enter 13013, and it will put you right through. He smiled and turned to leave. Althea smiled back, this time to keep her jaw from dropping open. As soon as the door to the office clicked closed, she entered the code. She needed to work fast. Reaching into the top of her dress, she retrieved a translucent, thumbnail-sized chip and slid it into a slot in the front of the desk. When the computer connected, she selected an encrypted channel and tapped the address into a search bar. The face of an old acquaintance popped up as if he was waiting for her call. Neil had the kind of constantly tired face that people develop when they spend every waking hour in the Nouveau-Net. His hair was long, and his face probably didn't know what a razor looked like, but his eyes lit up when he saw Althea. Alice. Well, if it isn't my estranged sister-in-law. Didn't think I'd see you again after the divorce. Even though the channel was encrypted, there was always someone watching. But Althea and her contacts had developed an elaborate code, more to keep the impression of plausible deniability than anything else. What he really meant was that he was surprised to see her running scams. He thought she quit. Wasn't just the divorce. I had to leave town for a few months, Althea replied. It's nice to hear from you. Just calling to catch up. No, I'm in town for a couple of days for Aunt Mary's funeral. She left us a crypto I think you should see. Althea touched another icon. She couldn't send him the entire file, not without someone getting suspicious, but she could send a short sample. Sorry to hear that, said Neil. He paused while he looked at the file she had sent. She watched as his eyes widened and his mouth hung open. There was no code for, we will crack half the financial consortium with this and make so much money we will have to pay people just to tell us how much it is. Her estate is in flux. We need five hundred million to settle it, Althea continued. 
That's a lot. If we get the money, how do we guarantee we get access to the estate? My brother-in-law, Lewis, works in collection. He'll see to the account personally. Neil looked down. Collections, huh? Risky. But I can set something up for him. Here. You missed the pictures from our last vacation. Althea touched an icon and downloaded a tracker program onto the disk along with the software. It would allow Neil to pinpoint its location anywhere in the world. I'll take a look when I have some time. I need to run by the bank first, said Althea. She reached over to activate another window and checked to make sure the money hit her account when she heard the click of a door lock opening. Shit, she hissed. Out of time. I'll have to trust you. Collections will be in the bin outside. On the other end, Neil worked faster. I've never led you wrong. Never will. Hey, Alice. It's good to see... Althea shut down the feed just as the door opened, pulled the small chip from the drive, and looked around the workstation. Near the chair, there was a wire waste paper basket. She grabbed a wad of paper, concealed the disc inside, and brought it to her mouth just as Ramil rounded the corner. Althea laughed as he returned. Sorry, just realized I still had gum in my mouth. Be ashamed to ruin such a fine drink. A flash of suspicion crossed the boy's face. Then he grinned, set the glasses on the desk, and started to pour the liquor. Hope you didn't get lonely here by yourself. Terribly, said Althea, taking one of the glasses and holding it up. Well, here's to your brilliance, and to a wonderful evening. Althea took a moment to savor the sweet, spicy liquor. It was dangerously smooth, with only the slightest burn to hint at its strength. She looked at the boy over the rim of her glass as he sipped his own drink. There was still time. Until she made the drop, she could call it off. She could throw away the chip hidden in the crumpled paper which she clutched in her hand. And yet, she was so close. Five hundred million corporation fiat would not only be her biggest score, but it would set her up for two or three years. Longer, if she held back on some of the extravagant expenses. And the boy, she winked at him as she took another drink, had no idea. The thought sent a jolt through her. She was on the brink of her biggest heist yet, and she was sharing a drink with her mark. How could she not go through with it when she was so close? She swallowed the rest and tossed back her fiery red hair. So I was thinking, we continued this party somewhere more... private. Ramail eagerly downed the rest of his drink in one gulp. I know just the place. She took his hand and together they left the office, took the elevator down, and walked back onto the streets of Arkester. On her way out, she tossed the scrap of paper into a garbage can near the entrance of the building. In a few minutes, a stranger, who only knew he would be paid a few extra fiat to collect and deliver it, would be by to finish the job. As they crossed through the district again, Althea led them into a crowd and slipped away before the poor dumb kid even realized she had gone. Vega walked back upstairs to his apartment. The group therapy session hadn't ended well. The moderator ordered him to attend meetings every day for the next month. He wasn't allowed visitors, and he wasn't allowed outside the clinic without supervision. They hadn't gone so far as to take away his private apartment, so it could have been worse. They could have stuck him in one of those wards in the other building where he'd share a cramped space with four or five other walking disasters. In those human dumping grounds, there was nothing to do except eat, shit, and wait to die. 
and someone would be watching you while you did all three. Playing cards with a person who has all the enthusiasm for life, as a fungus, doesn't exactly pass the time. Vega opened the door and turned on the lights. He swore when they flickered for a moment, then died. Not because he felt angry. It was just something he was compelled to do. The resonant transformer coils near the orchestra core provided constant, reliable power. On the outskirts, where the clinic was located, there were only five or six towers in range, and two would be working on a good day. Out here, the only reliable source of energy was gas, coal, Hell, some people had to burn what wood they could salvage from one of the crumbling ruins of the South African cities Orchester was built on. He felt his way into the room until he found the dresser, fumbled in the top drawer, found the matches, and lit a lamp full of a coal and water mixture he kept nearby. The room filled with the dull, flickering light, and something dark shot between his feet toward the space underneath the bed and squeaked. Ah, said Vago, my favorite vermin. Vago took off his khaki suit jacket and his white, wide-brimmed hat and hung them both carefully on a rack near the door. That was the other good thing. By keeping his private apartment, he also got to keep his clothes. Everyone else in the complex let themselves fall apart. Beautiful, fair-skinned women, fresh to the program, looked like wax plastered over a skeleton in a hot room within a week. Strong, sharp-eyed men looked like big burlap sacks filled with sadness. They exchanged bright, fashionable clothing for dull rags. Perfectly styled hair grew long, matted, and frayed. That spark of humanity died. Every time Vago looked one of them in the eye, he got this chill, like looking into the eyes of a corpse. So Vago kept his long black hair in a tight, braided queue, a tradition from his home on the Martian colony. He wore the same white khaki suits and his trademark hat, both habits he picked up during his short time riding in high society when he arrived on Earth. He wanted to look the way he used to, even if people knew the truth the minute they looked into his eyes. He went into the kitchen carrying the lamp with him, flicked on the gas stove, at least the gas worked today, and opened the kitchen cupboard. His dinner selection included something red in a can, something brown in a can, something red with brown lumps in a can, something brown with red specks in a can, and, for those special occasions, something brown with red specks and yellow lumps in a foil bag. Well, it had been a tough day. He pulled the bag off the shelf, tore it open with his teeth, and dumped the contents into a small saucepan and placed it on the burner. I left something special for you under the bed, you furry little nuffsh, he called over his shoulder. There was a loud snap from under the bed and a short terminal squeak. Ah, good, you found it. When his dinner started to bubble, Vago pulled it off the stove and ate it right out of the saucepan over the sink. When he was done, he dumped the leftovers in the garbage and pulled the trash bag out of the can. Back into the main room, he reached under the bed for the trap and examined the dead rat for a moment. Lucky bastard, he muttered before dropping it into the sack. There was a knock at the door. Probably someone come to remind him of his new unpleasant schedule. Yes, yes, I'll remember, he called. Group session, tomorrow morning. The voice on the other side called back. Vago, it's Althea. It was her. Her voice was unmistakable, but that was impossible. Althea didn't come out here. Not since the day he checked himself into the treatment program, and only then to make sure he did as he promised. It was better for both of them. That's how she explained it. He needed time to get better, and so did she. 
She was nearby if he needed her medical expertise, but that was it. So it couldn't be her. It was just another side effect of withdrawal. Sometimes he heard voices. The doctors explained that they were really in his own head, even if they didn't feel like it. Maybe he wanted her there. So that's what he heard. Vago dropped the sack and walked to the door, sure there would be nobody there. But there she was, the most wonderful hallucination he'd ever seen, drugged up or sober. Althea? Vago could barely get the word out. Vago, how are you? She smiled. It was a smile that could stop a war. Or cause it. Althea? Vago repeated, as if he might get a different response. What are you? Althea pounced before he could finish. At first, Vega wasn't even sure what was happening. All he knew was there was an explosion of sensations he'd mostly forgotten. He could smell perfume, like sweet orange blossoms. He could taste liquor on her breath. And he could feel, Jesus, God, and all the little children, he could feel her lips pressed against his. They must have staggered across the room because he felt his back slam into the wall that divided the main room from the kitchen. There was a rush of excitement, anticipation, passion, maybe even a touch of anxiety, but that was good in its own way as well. She pulled back, and he could see her hair as bright and red as a neon light. She had a face and a body that should be carved into marble and put on display, and she wore a little red dress that accentuated all of the above. In that instant, the fog cleared. The world was sharp. Althea, what are you doing here? He finally found his voice. I came to see you. She replied, gazing into him with her bright, emerald green eyes. How did you even get in here? I'm not allowed visitors. Vega, look at me. Like anyone's going to tell me, I can't go where I want. She stepped closer and started unbuttoning his shirt. I told the guy at the door I was called in for a medical consultation. Is that right? Vega mused. Yes, that's right. She wrapped both sides of his now unbuttoned shirt in her hands and pulled him to her and they kissed again. It wasn't a gentle romantic kiss, but something forceful, violent. Someone could get hurt, and they might even like it. In that beautiful moment, the haze cleared, and Vago felt like himself for the first time in... months. He wasn't one of those walking bags of meat, wandering the halls, and mumbling in monotone during group therapy. He was alive, and it felt great. And Althea... She looked better than that night when they met at that bar in Rio. That night she pulled the job that got her picked up by corporation agents. That night he was so strung out on booze and triple T, he didn't even wake up when the corpos broke down his door and hauled her away. The night two people found each other at their lowest point. Vago grabbed her by both shoulders and pushed her away as realization kicked in. Althea looked confused and a little frantic. What's wrong? What's the matter? She had a painful edge to her voice. Althea... What's going on here? Nothing. I just miss you. She leaned in to kiss him again, but he managed to hold her back this time. The thing is, Vago stammered as his libido launched a full assault on his sensibilities, making it challenging to form a complete sentence. The thing is, last time you and I did what I really hope is about to happen, you hated yourself. You hated me. We were both... What I'm trying to say is, it's been a really long time. A really kiasian long time since I wanted anything as bad as I want this, but I want to do the right thing here, and I don't know what that is. I realized something today, Althea said as she leaned in close and whispered in his ear. 
I've been trying so hard to be something I wasn't meant to be. But not anymore. Not again. I want this too. She pulled his shirt down over his shoulders and pushed him backward onto the bed. Then reached down and pulled the hem of her dress up and over her head and threw it against the wall. She stood off to the side in her bra and panties. Oh, Lord of the endless copper skies, lacy, black, borderline, transparent bra and panties. Still wonder what's the right thing to do? She asked, laughing. Then she crawled onto the bed, supported on her hands and knees over Vago's body, and pulled his face to hers. Do you really wonder? Nope, said Vago. I'm good. Vago pulled her on top of him and rolled over so that he had her pinned on the bed. They kissed, and his hand wandered up the side of her leg. This was happening. This was really happening. The warmth of her body, her scent, everything was as vibrant and real as if he were back on Triple T. Althea giggled as he started to kiss down her neck. Her nails scraped down his back, adding pain to the anticipation. Then a knock on the door ruined everything. Althea went rigid, her heavy breathing stopped, and her eyes shot wide open. For a moment, she laid underneath him, as if she wasn't sure she heard it. Then there was another knock. Althea rolled out from underneath Vago, nearly throwing him onto the floor in the process. She slid off the bed and looked around the room in a panic. Shit! Shit! Bloody hell! Corpos! Is there a back door to this place? Corpos? Vago was trying to steady himself on the edge of the bed. Althea, what did you do? I'll explain later. Back door! Don't know if you realize the function of this building... Vago chided as he got up, but it ain't exactly designed for easy getaways. There was more knocking. It got louder, urgent, and threatened to become banging at any moment. I wasn't here, she said, laying flat on the ground. Tell him I was never here. Vago walked to the door. It was Blinky. Splendid. Can I help you? he asked. Blinky looked at Vago, who was stripped down to his pants, and her eyes darted around the apartment, like a bird examining its surroundings, an unusually suspicious bird. What is going on in here? I heard voices. She wasn't here. She was never here, Vega recited. Who wasn't here? I know someone is in here. I want to know what is going on, said the woman, blinking even faster. Vega looked over his shoulder. It's okay, Althea. Just one of the doctors. Althea poked her head just over the bed and gave her a nervous, half-hearted wave. Who is she? Blinky demanded. Vega shrugged. My doctor. Private consultation. Althea slowly got to her feet. The doctor started blinking at least 50% more often. Dressed like that? Very expensive consultation. Very effective. Why are you here? Blinky thrust an envelope into Vago's hand. Message for you. Just arrived and labeled extremely urgent. While Vago opened the envelope, Blinky watched Althea retrieve her dress and slip it back over her head. Young lady... Blinky spat. I would like to see your authorization papers for this clinic, as well as your records concerning Mr. Spade. Actually, it won't be necessary. Got papers right here, Vago said, handing Blinky a translucent plastic sheet with his data scrolling across it. Discharge papers, by order of the ministry. And don't look so shocked and appalled. It's just temporary. A quick trip. They'll be right back so you can use me as your own personal chew toy. Blinky took the sheet and touched the relevant data points to see them in greater detail, with her eyes fluttering so much it was a wonder she could actually read the papers at all. Very well, she said in a resigned tone of voice. I will put this through. But when you return, I'm full certain there'll be questions, probably followed by unacceptable answers and a dose of unpleasant circumstances. I'm looking forward to it. 
Blinky turned and marched back down the hall. Vega watched her leave for a moment and closed the door. Althea walked up beside Vago. What's going on? Who's it from? Vago pulled another plastic sheet from the envelope and read the words that scrolled across its surface. Isra, we're going to Venus. Althea shook her head. Venus? When? The shuttle leaves Cape City in eight hours. Eight hours? That's so... I need to get some things together. Althea rushed for the door. Vago threw the dynamic paper and envelope into the drawers near the burning coal lamp. Now you don't gotta rush off just like that. Lightning rail don't leave for another couple of hours. I can do a lot in two hours. I've got to check all my equipment, Althea replied in a distracted tone. An hour, then. I can work with an hour. You can get to the station by yourself, right? It is okay if I meet you there? Althea was already opening the door. Half an hour. We can go together. Save a little time. She was already halfway down the hall, and she called over her shoulder. Sorry, Vago. I just... I should go. Vago leaned out the door. Fifteen minutes, he yelled. Ten. It's a rush job, but... Ah, shan't ye, ye, Vago leaned against the doorway. That got downright pathetic in a big hurry. He went back inside and looked at the trash bag he'd left by the door in the excitement. The dead rat in the trap was still sitting on top of the rest of his household trash. He picked it up. At least we still have our dignity, right, little buddy? Between you and me, I think I'd be better off in the sack. You have been listening to The Ruins of Empire, Templum Veneris, the second book of The Ruins of Empire Project. The Ruins of Empire podcast was written by Jeremy L. Jones and produced by Sean Vincent. Cover art was by Nick Martin. Music was Predator by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Licensed under Creative Commons 3.0 license. City of Geeks. Independent new media produced in Idaho.